Amen. Now would you welcome Paul Covell, who has a testimony we wanted to have him share. Hi, uh, my name is Paul Koval. I am uh, delighted to be here, kind of. Actually, I'm really nervous. Um, I got uh, to be here because I had a wonderful story happen to me, and I sent a note to about it to Ross, and he asked me to come up here. So if you don't ever want to be up here, don't share your stories <laughs> with him. I'm telling you that first thing. Num- uh, number two is I... I uh, but I did want to see if this could edify one or maybe a few of you uh, in this room. I want to say that, uh, as opposed to Steve last week, I, uh, my story of how I came to be a Christian was very boring. I was a young man, and my father took me aside and said, uh, there's a God. He controls everything. He rules my life. You're going to have a lot better life if you let him rule yours. And I was like, okay. And so that's how I, that's the kind of Christian I am. <laughs> it's true. But the funny part is that, you know, there were some, a lot of, people really know me know I still have a lot of ways to go in my faith and my maturity of how I handle all things. One thing that my wife and my family here, I have a, my wife and four kids come to Quest 2, is that she helped me work on how to explain something very critical, is that I'm not the kind of Christian who sees God's hand in every little detail. So she, she wrote that sentence, let me say it again. I'm not the kind of Christian who sees God's hand in every little detail. And I'm, those of you who really know me is I'm a kind of crusty kind of guy. I play loud music. I uh, have a big bike, and the workmen's are here. If you haven't seen my bike, I'm sure you've heard it. And I don't cry. So I'm that kind of guy, and you can see my face is a warm, inviting sort of guy that little kids want to run and uh, be friends with me. <laughs> so that's it. So put that in the context of my story. I wanted to, but let me start reading scripture because I'm nervous I can read scripture to calm me down. Is that of many parts of the miraculous parts of the book of the Bible, is there, don't you, there's some parts that just hit you that they apply to you. Let me start out with a story that applies, just hits me right in the gut. If you look at Matthew, Mark, and John, they describe how the disciples start out, and Simon Peter starts out as basically Jesus comes up and says, drop what you're doing, I'll make you fishers of men. And they drop what they're doing to make you fishers of men. But Luke, in his uh, story, really tells the details. Let me sort of paraphrase it and go through here. Uh, Christ was speaking by the uh, sea or lake of Gennesaret, if I pronounce that right. And he came up to the edge of uh, the shore, and he saw fishermen had gotten out of their boats and were washing their nets. And this basically means they gave up fishing. And he got to one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little way from the land. And he sat and began teaching the multitudes from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered, as I would have answered, saying, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing, but at your bidding I'll let down the nets. Meaning, I'm the master of what I know. There's no fish out there. You have to realize what Simon and the people had seen to then, he had seen miracles, the lepers, the, the uh, uh, demons coming out. He had seen people here see, of, of, of uh, his mother-in-law had been cured of a fever. You know, Christ came over and said, fever, depart, and she got up better. So he'd seen all these miracles. But what's so special to me is you could rationalize those away. Well, I don't know, that guy, something this and that. And mom wasn't really that sick. She was going to get better tomorrow anyway. So you could rationalize it away. He had seen all that, but the one thing Peter knew, that there's no fish in the lake. He just knew that. God, I know, you know, there's no fish in this lake. But Simon answered him, and they went out. And when they went out, they enclosed a great number of fish, and their nets began to break. 
and they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come out and help them with the fish. And when they came, they filled both of the boats, so they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw this, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And he said, For the amazement had seized him and all his companions. But Jesus eventually says, Do not fear, from now on you'll be catching men. So this is my amazing story I'd like to share with you shortly. Uh, I went down to downtown Columbus on election night to go to the Democratic convention there and drove my car. When I came back and drove home, I did not know it, but my car had been broken into. These are professionals that broke into my car. So good that I didn't even know it was broken into. Actually, I found out when my son the next day said, Dad, somebody tried to jack your car. And I'm like, what does that mean? I looked and there's a hole very neatly drilled underneath the lock that they get in and mangle the lock and open up your door. I didn't know I had anything in the car, so I was pretty spiritual. I was proud of myself, how spiritual I was. Oh, it's a physical thing, who cares? It's only a, a vehicle, who cares? Somebody broke my car, I don't care. But then later, I found out that I had had my briefcase with my Bible, my most cherished Bible, in the car, and that's what was stolen. Probably they thought it was a laptop or something, but all that was in it was some Quest papers and uh, a Bible. So I was very upset. You know, the professionals say you're supposed to go through denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. I went right into anger and I pretty much stayed there. I was very good at anger. (laughs) I'm very good at it. Guys in my cell group will tell you when I came down to reading the Bible, I was like, I don't need to. God took my Bible. I'm done with it, I guess. I don't need it anymore. I'm like, God, really? My Bible? I wish. And people, some people said to me, well, they needed it more than you. And I'm like, well, somebody came up and said, I need a Bible. I would have bought them one. Or given money for one, why this one? So I was so disgusted, I didn't even pray about it. I'm like, God, I want that Bible. It had been around since 1980 when I met my wife. We were going to Xenos at the time, and all my notes and all my scribblings and the just development of my spiritual life were chronicled in that Bible and have it all cross-referenced. And it was a big tool that was lost, and I was very bitter. I didn't even know how to, 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 to deal with this. I was emotionally destroyed by this. But 50 days later... I was in work, and my secretary comes up 50 days later, says, oh, there's a policeman on the phone wants to talk to you. And then when my kind of habits and hobbies, when you get a note that a policeman wants to talk to you, in general, the first thought is, yeah, i got to explain. First, I've got to explain this to my wife, what the heck they're coming at me at work now. But then my secretary said, something about a briefcase. And I'm like, you should see my heart. Like a briefcase, you got to be kidding me. And I get to call down a bunch of calls, and, and my briefcase had been located. Now, let me outline some things that you have to... There's plenty of miracles in this story, but just the, the main ones here that really get me going. Number one, I lost a briefcase downtown, professionally stolen. It was recovered near OSU behind a medical building, miles away, probably five, ten miles as a crow flies. The briefcase was still kind of shut, kind of open, but kind of shut, partially thrown out on the train tracks. The cop's uh, theory was, of course, that a a homeless person had carried it all the way up. So the immediate thief saw no computer, dropped it, a homeless person carried it up to OSU. Where it fell there, uh, and and also let me add two more things, I forgot that earlier. Everybody associated with the story was a believer, so all the people that helped me with this story were, were remarkably enough believers. So you would know that, of course, meteorologically that this was the wettest fall in Columbus, so it rained most of those 50 days, raining 50 days. A worker at the medical office saw my briefcase behind a 
train tracks and had to go get a young person to go crawl up and get it because it wasn't obviously there. You know, this young kid went up and retrieved the briefcase. It was so ratty, ants, some, there are insects coming out of it, I don't even know what they were, that they were scared to open the briefcase. But a, the police officer who arrived, also a believer, uh, opened my briefcase and found different things in it to get a hold of me. And here, even get, the miracle gets so more complicated, he found identification papers and called me. The medical office people put my name in the computer. I'd been operated on there like some 20 years before, so they found me. They sent out an email to their employees, and Beth, a good friend of my wife, said, I know that guy, I know that Bible, and gave my phone number. So she still worked there, you know, some 16 years later, and knew me. The Bible's on the way back to me. And I found out later then the husband of somebody's friend who was there said, yeah, I know that guy, here's, here's his phone number. So everybody had my phone number. The Bible was already on the way back to me. Couldn't have, four times, four, you know, any one of those could have failed, it was still on the way back. But I still didn't know, you know, what condition. I drove to find a cop at OSU and I found him and he handed me my Bible and said, I bet you never thought you'd see this again. And uh, here it is, by the way, is in here. Thanks. <laughs> And I, I don't know if Denise Snowden is here today. I even, it's, it's pretty much intact. It still works. All my notes are here. I get the smell test. still smells like my Bible. <laughs> and, and let me just add a few more things is that the briefcase was not, which is here. I dried it out. It took months, you know, days to drive out. It wasn't even in the officer's car. It was so ratty, like I said, insects and leaves and stuff. He did not even put it in his car. He said, it's in the trunk if you want it. But I did, all the loose papers were destroyed. In, in, in the trunk. So I got my briefcase back. It's intact. What a you know, sock in the gut, just like Simon Peter. You know, Jesus went right to where he lived and said, you think you know there's no fish? There's fish. This briefcase, this, I gave up the day after this briefcase was lost. It's under a thousand feet of trash. If anything, somebody would preserve the briefcase and thrown out the Bible. I knew more than anything else I've ever known in my life that this Bible was history. And I also doubted that God cared for me enough to bring the briefcase back to me, and he did. So I want my testimony to everybody here, and my kids, and my wife is, I don't want to be afraid. I want to be a fisher of men, too. I got this back. Evidently, it's important to me to just still fish. And I'm not going to cry because I don't do that, but I'll tell you one thing. There's probably some people here who are the doubters, just like I am, rationalizing way. It's not that bad, whatever. Well, I'm brought here. You come up afterwards. Here's what a briefcase looks like, and papers look like 50 days of rain. But here's what a Bible looks like. Here's what a book looks like. Here's what a Bible looks like. Does somebody want back after 50 days of rain? Thank you very much. Thank you, Paul. You know, isn't it amazing how God, uh, you know, we heard his testimony last night about how God did some really amazing, uh, profound things, and, 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 a Bible, and he still chooses through some simple things to show us he's real, and it's, uh, it's just beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Now, we have, uh, we're starting a new series today, and uh, we have a video introduction to that, and I want to make a disclaimer. Uh, I have never seen this video, this, this movie. I am not recommending this movie. We cleaned up this clip a little bit with a few things in it, and uh, we're using it because I think it's a really great cultural, funny illustration of what we're trying to get at, so enjoy. Summer's ready, 
come on, y'all. I've been slaving over this for hours. Dear Lord, baby Jesus, or as our brothers to the south call you, Jesus, we thank you so much for this bountiful harvest of dominoes, KFC, and the always delicious Taco Bell. I just want to take time to say thank you for my family, my two beautiful, beautiful, handsome, striking sons, Walker and Texas Ranger, or TR, as we call them. And, of course, my red-hot smoking wife, Carly, who's a stone-cold fox. Mm. Also want to thank you for my best friend and teammate, Cal Naughton Jr., who's got my back no matter what. Shake and bake. Dear Lord Baby Jesus, we also thank you for my wife's father, Chip. We hope that you can use your baby Jesus powers to heal him and his horrible leg. And it smells terrible, and the dogs are always mm. bothering with it. Mm. Dear tiny infant Jesus. Hey, we... um, you know, sweetie, Jesus did grow up. You don't always have to call him baby. It's a bit odd and off-putting to pray to a baby. Well, look, I like the Christmas Jesus best, and I'm saying grace. When you say grace, you can say it to grown-up Jesus or teenage Jesus or bearded Jesus or whoever you want. You know what I want? I want you to do this grace good so that God will let us win tomorrow. Dear tiny Jesus, in your golden fleece diapers with your tiny little fat balled-up fist pawing. He was a man. He had a beard. Look, I like the baby version the best. Do you hear me? I like to picture Jesus in a tuxedo t-shirt because it says, like, I want to be formal, but I'm here to party, too. Because I like to party, so I like my Jesus to party. I like to picture Jesus as a ninja fighting off evil samurai. I like to think of Jesus, like, with giant eagle's wings and singing lead vocals for Leonard Skinner with, like, an angel band. And I'm in the front row, and I'm hammered drunk. Hey, Cal, why don't you just shut up? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Dear eight-pound, six-ounce, newborn infant Jesus, don't even know a word yet. We just thank you for all the races I've won and $21.2 million. Woo! 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 Ow! Love that money that I have accrued over this past season. Also due to a binding endorsement contract that stipulates I mentioned Powerade at each grace. I just want to say that Powerade is delicious Mm. and it, it cools you off on a hot summer day. And we look forward to Powerade's release of Mystic Mountain Blueberry. Mm. Thank you for all your power and your grace, dear baby God. Amen. 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 (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I'll tie it in in just a moment. (laughs) Over the last decade, there's been an explosion of interest in who Jesus really is. And uh, we have had all sorts of things about who Jesus is in the media. It's been amazing to watch the movies and the documentaries and the, and the songs by Christian and secular artists and all sorts of stuff come out about claiming about who Jesus is. In fact, uh, you know, we've got movies and books coming out like the Da Vinci Code that try to take uh, mid, middle, middle Ages mythology and make it first century history. And we, there was an article I read a couple weeks ago in one of the major news sources Uh, that was analyzing how journalists in particular use the Bible and and highlighting the fact that most journalists at major, major news services have no clue what Jesus said or what the Bible said. In fact, they quoted like the New York Times quoting and ascribing some of Jesus' most famous statements to modern-day poets because they didn't know it came from Jesus. 
And we see all sorts of stuff like that going on. We see they, they quoted a popular musician who wrote a song and, and, and took a scripture verse out of it and totally 100% twisted it and made it the exact opposite meaning of what the Bible says, but somehow felt like that was a good thing. And, and it was just amazing. And, and it's not just, though, in popular media. It really is for us as well. We all tend to be attracted to the Jesus that we like, the Jesus that's most interesting to us, the Jesus that touches us most. And, you know, some of us, maybe we are more attracted coming out of the Christmas season to the, to the baby Jesus, and it just makes us feel good. That time of the season makes us feel good. And yet there's these other aspects of Jesus that we struggle with, and, and, and it usually comes out in church conversation in this way. Usually when something happens that somebody doesn't like, somebody will say, well, Jesus wouldn't do it that way. And you ask them, well, tell me where in the Bible that you tell me that Jesus wouldn't. Well, no, he just wouldn't do it that way because I like him and he's nice here and so he would never do this. Or, you know, and we just have these ideas and don't really, really fully even understand. And it's, and it's not that much different than, than in Jesus' day. John, the disciple closest to Jesus, said this in John 1.11. It says, Jesus came to, those, or to that which was his own, his own people, but his own people did not receive him. And that word receive actually could also be translated did not recognize him, just didn't see him. In fact, if you really look at the disciples' lives, it's, it's really pretty interesting because they're consistently throughout their journey with Jesus running into this issue. They're consistently running into the issue of their perception of Jesus, and Jesus is getting flabbergasted by it. And we see him, even in Steve's uh, testimony last week, he referenced this. We see Jesus at times getting ready to pull his hair out and go, how long do I have to be with you? This is not who I am. And for many of us, that really is a big part of our journey with God. And the problem is when we live with a Jesus who is shaped to fit our desires. When we live with a Jesus that we make up, the Jesus that we're comfortable living with, the Jesus that we're most attracted to, whether it's the 8-pound, eight 12-ounce eight Jesus, or whether it's the bearded Jesus, or whether it's the smiling Jesus, or whether it's the stern-looking Jesus, whatever Jesus it is that we make up has no power because he can't confront us. He can't challenge us. He can't even comfort us because he's the Jesus we make up. If you want a Jesus who can really change you, you need the real Jesus. And today we begin a series just titled that, Real Jesus. And we're going to start by looking primarily at Jesus through the, the eyewitness account of, of Mark, whose eyewitness is actually Peter that he's recording. He's the secretary for Peter in a sense. And we're going to discover who he really is, not just, not just in a personal spiritual piety, but why he matters to us in, in family, why he matters to us in relationships, why he matters to us in our work, why he matters to us in our politics, why he matters to us in our worldview and, and how we go about learning and our scholarship and and we're going to do it by looking at primarily Mark, not, not solely. We'll, we'll go over into some of the other eyewitness accounts, but we're going to look primarily at Mark for several reasons. He's, he's the first eyewitness account written. And now many, many books have been written, and many 
scholars have tried to debunk these as saying they're not really eyewitness accounts. They're just legends made up. And they have several arguments for that, but one of the simplest ways to look at it is there's been, there's been major writers and major authors like Lee Strobel and Anne Rice and Anne Wilson, Anne Wilson who have all held this view, even in modern times, that it's really legend. And the more they have studied it, the more they have ended up coming to faith and realizing that it is really difficult to argue against the fact that these are truly eyewitness accounts. Some would even argue against the idea that their eyewitness accounts because they say, well, they weren't written down until 30 years plus after Jesus died and rose again. And, and in our day, that doesn't make sense because Mark was written the first one somewhere around 65 AD. And, and, and in our day, that just doesn't seem natural. In the day when everything's written down, where media is covering everything, where there's blogs about everything, where everybody's Facebooking out about everything, it makes no sense to us to have such a great figure and nothing written down for so many years. But, but think of it this way. The culture was different. Many of the followers of Jesus were uneducated people who, who probably barely knew how to write. They were more interested those first years in actually preaching the gospel and bringing people to Christ and it was exploding and expanding and, and people were becoming Christians in droves all over the place. And, and it really wasn't until about 30 years after when the eyewitnesses began to die out that they even started to feel a need to put stuff in writing. Because up to that point, think about it. If somebody wanted to come out and say, well, Jesus was a flying Jesus, or, or Jesus was the anime guy who could take fireballs and throw them, or Jesus was a polygamist who had many wives and many kids, there were so many eyewitnesses that you couldn't get away from that. There were his 12 disciples. There were 120 plus some of their families that traveled with him for almost his entire three years of ministry. There were thousands upon thousands of people who saw him in person, who were healed by him, who were ministered to by him. And even Paul in 1 Corinthians goes on and says, there were even 500 people who saw Jesus alive after the resurrection. Any of those myths that would have gotten started would have easily been debunked because there was somebody there to raise their hand and say, that's not true. I was there. I saw him. I know what happened. But we get to this time in history and, and the eyewitnesses are starting to die out and so we have these four eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life, all written with a little bit of a different idea in mind. We have Matthew written by Matthew, one of Jesus' 12 disciples. We have John written by one of Jesus' 12 disciples, and John was the oldest one to die. He lived until 100 A.D. before he died. We have Luke, who wasn't one of Jesus' original disciples, but he was commissioned and, and sponsored by a wealthy believer to go and interview all of the eyewitnesses. And he traveled around, he interviewed, he interviewed the 12 disciples, he interviewed uh, that were still alive at his time, he interviewed the people who were healed and their families, and he went to all the places and made an orderly account of many eyewitness accounts of what Jesus did. And then we have Mark, who uh, even from early tradition, as early as shortly after 100 you have people who knew John the disciple who when he, while he was still alive and knew who pe knew people who lived and, and ministered with Peter himself who said that uh, Papias was one of them who said that he knew that Peter was the source for this text of Mark in fact uh, shortly after that there's another church father who actually refers to the book of Mark as the memoirs of Peter 
And he goes on a little bit further to explain a little bit of the intent in why it was written and how it was written. He goes further to say that, that Mark was actually not written to be a, an 100% actual, uh, chronologically accurate. It wasn't supposed to be like a historical, this happened, then that happened, then that happened. It was written more with Peter's idea in mind of taking the different periods of Jesus' life and demonstrating the types of things he did in those time periods of his life. And it's one of those, it's an interesting book from the rest of them because uh, Mark is written in more in the present tense. It's, it's written with words like immediately in it, and it focuses more on Jesus' actions. In fact, compared to the other eyewitness accounts, we find the least amount of commentary, and we find the least amount of Jesus' actual words of teaching in Mark. And really what he's trying to do in this process is, is, is think the same way people have thought for centuries and the way we think today. We always use this phrase, don't we? Actions speak louder than words. And that is Mark's intent. His intent is, is to show us this Jesus and to, for us to discover his character and who he is through his actions. So we're going to spend time primarily in Mark. We'll spend a little bit of time in some of the other Mark, uh, Matthew and Luke as well as we go through this. Uh, but, but Mark starts hard and fast. While the other uh, eyewitness accounts like Matthew and Luke, they have these long preambles and tell you a little bit about his life before that. And John just starts with this great big, big picture statement about God and Jesus and creation. We see Mark just starting really hard and fast in describing who Jesus is in the very first few verses and his whole intent of doing that is to set the stage to describe and then show through his actions that he really is what he's just described. So let's look at it. Mark 1.1 just begins like this. It says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, we hear the term Jesus Christ, and we usually think it's a synonym, especially if you hear it in movies and out in the construction sites. It's usually used as a synonym, right? Jesus Christ and... But Jesus is his name, and Christ is his title. Christ means this, the anointed king. Mark starts off by telling us that Jesus is this king, and not just any king. He is this king set apart by God. And then he uses in the next phrase, he says, and he's the son of God. Now, this is an interesting term in the Bible, biblical usage, because uh, in Jesus here, it refers to something else. But throughout the rest of the Bible, we see the word and the term son of God being used to talk about angels and about humans as the sons of God. And we see it used by that. But in this instance, and we could go a lot into the term and why and in the cultural writing that, Mark is, or that Peter and Mark are targeting, we could just explain why that this actually is referring to God himself. But we don't even have to go into that background. We can just look at the next few verses. In verse 2, it says, it is written in Isaiah the prophet, and, and Peter and Mark go on to quote one of the most famous messianic prophecies of all time. He says, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths or a straight road for him. And then it goes on to say, so John, who we call John the Baptist, came baptizing. We have really interesting names, don't we? Just John the Baptist, you know, just come up with names. Here's the interesting part in this context. 
prepare the way of the Lord. That word Lord, where he's quoting it from, is actually the most sacred Jewish name of God himself. It's the name Yahweh. John is basically, or Paul, Mark is basically saying, John the Baptist came to prepare the way for the Lord, for God himself, which he's by nature here saying is Jesus. So he's telling us that Jesus is God come in the flesh. God come to us in human form. In theological terms, God incarnate. This is earth-shattering news. And it has huge implications back then for the Jews, for the Romans, for the Greeks alike, and for us. I'll turn my beeper off if you heard that on the mic. Tells me my son has a basketball game. Sorry about that. (laughs) And here's why it's earth-shattering. If you've studied philosophy, the core debate of all the centuries in philosophy has been this. It's been between the ideal and the real. It's been a debate between the universals and particulars. It's been a debate between Aristotle and Plato, between the metaphysical and spiritual or the physical world. And in Jesus, what this text is saying, by claiming that he is the incarnate God, it's resolving every philosophical debate ever made. Because it's saying in Jesus, the ideal has become real. The spiritual has become physical. The unapproachable, the all-powerful, has become approachable and vulnerable and touchable. And the the, the impact of this is it sets apart Christianity from every other religion in all of history. Hinduism and Buddhism talk about this. They say that there's a divine spark in everything and that we're all just becoming one with God all the time. It's in all of us. And so in their mindset, incarnation is always happening and always present. In Islam and Judaism, God is holy, on the other hand, holy set apart, holy transcendent, holy other. He cannot ever become incarnate. He can't become like us. Incarnation is impossible. Christianity is saying God is so amazingly powerful and transcendent and beyond who we are, so wholly wonderful that the incarnation is not constant. And yet, he is so loving and so close that he becomes one of us. And yet, I know some of us don't believe because we get into this argument that we're more advanced intellectually than back in that day to believe superstitions and things like this. But, but that only fails to really be honest about the historical context of that day. The barriers of the Jew to having God become incarnate were much greater than any intellectual barrier we have today. And yet, Mark, in writing this, is saying that his purpose is to show us Describe us and then show us through our vicarious experience of his actions, Jesus' own actions, that he is exactly what he says he is and help us move past those barriers. And in the process, and specifically in these verses today, Mark is giving us some insight into what can completely change the motivation of our hearts in all of life, as well as gives us some clear distinctions between what religion is and what following Jesus is today. Think about it for a moment. When you take the time to think about your own life, 
and your own motivations in life, what is it that drives you? Your motivation. What drives you on a day-to-day basis? I think Steve said it pretty profoundly last week for us in his testimony. He said for him it was fear. It was fear of looking bad. It was fear of not succeeding. It was fear of not having great relationships in his life. And so many of us, fear is what drives us. Fear of not being good enough. Fear of not being loved. Fear of not being accepted. And it, and it drives so much of our behavior. Fear of failure. And religion tries to give us answers to compensate for that fear. And at the same time, religion motivates us by that same fear. And it attempts to give us this sense of control. If you do these things, it says, then you'll be successful. If you pray enough, if you do the right things, if you fast enough, then you'll be healed. If you memorize enough scripture, you'll obviously be better than other people and God will change your life wholly and fully. And those things are good, but, but Buddhism has its eightfold path. Islam has the five pillars. Judaism has the Ten Commandments. Mormonism and Jehovah Witness, they have their own path to get us to God. And yet the truth of the incarnation, the truth of God becoming one of us, is that he comes to us because he knows that we can never get to him on our own. We can never be good enough. And Mark is saying to us that Jesus can completely change the motivation of our heart from from fear to joy, from stress to peace, from anger to gratefulness, from striving to acceptance, from not being good enough to be not only completely loved, but pursued by him, the God who comes to us. God becoming flesh changes our perspective on pain and suffering in life as well. You know, when's the last time you you were hurting? Think think of the last time you were hurting. And a friend came to you and said, oh, I understand. Did you want to punch him in the mouth? Did Did you just want to deck him and say, you've never been through this before? You don't know what I'm feeling. On the other hand, have you ever had somebody come to you who, who you know had been through more than what you'd ever experienced so far? Who'd experienced many of the similar things that you've experienced? Maybe they had the exact same thing. And they just sat with you compassionately and said, I want to be here with you. How did that make you feel? Wasn't there a depth of peace? Wasn't there a depth of safety? Wasn't there there a depth of even hope that came in you to be near that person? To have them talk to you and minister to you and for you to want to open up to them and, and be cared for by them? And you see no religion on earth. There's no religion on earth that says God took on wounds to be like us to identify with us. There's no religion on earth that says God understands what you feel because in all the other religions of the earth, God is either this faraway person that we're trying to measure up to who's never failed in anything, never felt anything bad, never suffered with any of the same temptations or weaknesses. It's only in Christianity that we have a God who came and says to you, I came in the flesh 
to experience what you experience, to take it all on me so that I could love you more deeply and care for you more deeply. Incarnation even changes the way we think about the earth and life in general today because most religions focus either upon escape to a better place, that someday if we're just good enough, if we just do the right things, if we blow ourselves up killing the infidels or whatever it is, we will go to this nirvana or this, or this paradise and we'll escape this bad place. Or some of the religions just declare that what we experience today is just an illusion. And yet in God coming and taking on flesh and living among us, and even in the the storyline that goes on about how he's going to come back, it clearly says to us that he wants to redeem who we are now, here. It talks about one day he wants us to restore to us new bodies that are whole and and healthy, and he wants to bring a new earth that's whole and healthy. And and there's this whole implication that we won't talk about much here, but about what this means for how we think about peace today, how we think about justice today, how we think about healing and disease today, and how we think about ecology. It's an amazing thing. But Mark doesn't stop at making claims of who Jesus is. He moves on from there and shows us a biblical theme that touches our lives and his life. And in the next few verses it says, And so John came baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. And John wore clothing of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. And it goes into a lot of detail. And it says, after me I will come, come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. And he says, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And this theme that emerges here that we're going to explore today and, and explore even more deeply in the coming weeks is, it, it, it's, it's like this. When you, read a, when you get to know somebody or when you read a, 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 like the history on somebody, I don't know if you're like me, but the part I love to know the most is I want to know the challenges and the struggles you faced and what you learned from them and how you came through them. I don't think there's anything more than those difficult times in life that shows us what the character of the person is and who they are. Because character isn't seen in in the times when life's going well. Character isn't seen just in the things we don't do. It's seen in how we respond most when all the pressure's against us to respond otherwise. And in the whole of the Bible, from Abraham, Jacob, and Moses to the people of Israel, who we all find our identity, we all find God in the desert. It's a theme. We find him in the desert. The people of Israel didn't find him in Egypt. They found him at Mount Sinai in the desert. And then they didn't really actually take on that identity. They understood what the identity was, but they didn't take on their identity until 40 years in the desert took place. And we see in this that that God takes us on a regular basis to this place where there is, without God's provision, we would die. There's no life in the desert. It's a lonely place. It doesn't support a community, so it's a lonely place. It's a thirsting place. It's a place where there's threat and there's fear. And he takes us there. Even, even church history, throughout church history, every single era of church history, the great people of faith talk about what God does in their life through the desert and how they met him there. 
And in this passage, we see John the baptizing, baptizing people in the desert. And we think, ah, oh, it's nothing new. I mean, yeah, they're going out there, they're surviving, they're going out in the place, there's some figurative stuff tying to Scripture, but, but it really is something new. Because while other religions and other faiths all along had these rituals of washing hands or, or, or purification with water as part of their rituals of worship, even the Jews had that. There's something happening here for the first time in history. In John the Baptist, we see for the very first time somebody else baptizing you. Because all the rest of the time in the other religions, you do it to yourself. You wash your own hands. You baptize yourself. You wash yourself. And for the first time, it's something being done to you by another. You know, think about this desert more. What does God do in the desert? It's, think about your own life. You know, you started off in life and you, you, things were going well, maybe. And, and you got married and, and you started having a family and that was going well. And you got into a job and you started getting promotions and you started making money and you bought your first house and maybe some of you bought your second and third house and you were flipping them and making the money until, it, until the economy goes south. And all of a sudden, maybe you lose a bunch or you lose everything or, or until all of a sudden you get in a place and you lose your job or your marriage has some troubles. And we go into this desert place where we go, everything was good, and now what's going on? You see, it's in the desert we discover whether God is an add-on, whether he's an accessory, whether he's a vitamin drink or an energy booster or whatever he is, or whether he's the whole deal for us. Because it's in the desert that we face these things and, and everything else becomes dry. We become thirsty for it. We find out whether we need our job and our success in order to be, have an identity, or whether it's really God that we've lost and that we've got our identity in. We, we find out whether it's our relationships that identify, that identify us and, and give us meaning in life, or, or whether it's really just God. We find whether our identity is in money or, or whether it's in God in the desert. And for some reason, God is so much more concerned about our freedom and about loving us well enough that he helps us find him in the desert. And some of you have gone through those experiences where you, where you hit a wall and you were maybe losing your marriage or you're losing your job and it caused you to turn back to religion, turn back to faith. And it's a good thing. But for many of us, all we do when that happens is we transfer one behavior for another. We transfer one God, little g, of money or relationships or sex for another little God called religion. And we're still trying to measure up. We're still trying to wash ourselves. We're still trying to baptize ourselves rather than just surrendering to this king who is God. You know, relationship with the king comes from surrendering, from do, from, not from doing, from receiving salvation, not from, not from saving yourself. You see, we get into these things a lot of times in our arguments with God. We say, God, I will follow you if. I'll, I'll follow you if 
my family goes well. I'll follow you if I'm successful and no problems happen. I'll follow you if life is fair to me and people are just. I'll, I'll, I'll follow you in being a part of a church if, if I don't ever get offended or if it's interesting enough or if it meets my needs or I'll follow you if. And the, on, the other, on the other side of that if, we discover who our God really is or whether it's just an idol. And God loves us enough to invite us to the desert for us to find that. And ultimately, Jesus himself goes not only to a first desert, which we'll look at more in the weeks to come, but the ultimate desert, this, this place of thorns, this place of utter abandonment, this place of utter loneliness. Because the school of the king is the desert. You know, another important intentional concept in Mark here and later uh, as well is, is, is this idea of the road and this prepare, your, prepare a straight road for the king. And, and see, the readers of the time would have, would have read this and they would have resonated with that. It would have made so much sense to them, but it would have been terrifying for them to read that. Because what that word meant, and it was a common usage back then, is when a king came, it meant you built a road for him. What that meant was slavery. It meant burden. It meant tough amounts of labor away from your family just to be good enough for this king to come. But you see, the anointed king in this context, and as we'll see later as the word road is used throughout Mark, he didn't come to go to a throne. He came to go to a cross. He didn't come to lord it over us. He came to be like us and to serve us and love us. And though this image of king sometimes is hard for us and may seem oppressive, Jesus' kingship isn't oppressive. And the point in John's baptism and in Christ's baptism of us in the Holy Spirit and the incarnation of God and Jesus and the road that Jesus follows and the road he invites us to follow is simply this, that we can't save ourselves. He's the one. Jesus went into the wilderness and was forsaken by God so we could go into the wilderness and find God. He took our punishment that we deserve so that we can have, by grace, a relationship with God. He, makes, he takes ten insurmountable, burdening, enslaving demands of making the road straight, and he frees us from slavery instead. Because he comes as the servant who makes the road for us. Jesus isn't oppressive because he's a servant. And the only kind of response that I can think of to a God who is like that is an extreme one. We don't like extreme, and rightfully so, possibly, because of what we see around us. But being like Jesus is being extremely humble. It's being extremely gentle, extremely gracious, extremely compassionate, extremely kind, extremely real, extremely honest. And this, Jesus, the real Jesus, can transform our lives. I want to invite you to not only go on this journey of discovering the real Jesus, but I want to invite you to invite your friends who have their own ideas of who this Jesus is that have been made up by what they like or by culture or whatever. And I want you, I want you to, to, to invite them to come on the journey with us as well. Because as long as we have our own made-up Jesus... It'll just be religion. It'll be 
a thirst-producing place. It'll be a death-producing place for us. I want to invite you today to the real Jesus in this journey as we go. Let's pray. Lord, I know it's so easy, even your own disciples who are spending time with you, even even a year or two years into spending time with you, even three years into spending time with you, were still running up, up against their own version of who you were. And Lord, I pray that through this study that we're embarking on today, through our times together, that you would show us who you really are. And then in so doing, our lives would be transformed. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would like prayer, we'd love to pray for you. Otherwise, uh, we're running a little over. Run and get your kids. Have a great week.